as you know, I rarely mention uh, money or offerings. Uh, we don't make a big deal out of them. Uh, we don't take them up on the holy days like days of yore. <clears throat> we just put a box and uh, many holy days go by that I don't even mention it. Uh, once in a while I will. But I don't want to be remiss in thanking you occasionally at least for the generous offerings that that you give to God, to His work, and ultimately for the benefit of all of us as we try to do what God would have us do. So thank you very much uh, for them. It, it has been with purpose that I have not mentioned money much. And I've explained that before, but it was such a big deal in Worldwide to get as much money as they could and different kinds of offerings, and then it had to all be counted by the end of the service and the deacons and some of the elders were back there instead of listening to the sermon counting money and uh, it was just a wrong emphasis I felt uh, so we just put a box out and and uh, it's your responsibility before God and, and you take that responsibility and uh, that is very much appreciated and it's scriptural you know he, he did say in the talking about the holy days that we're not to come before him empty and that we, he loves a cheerful giver, and so on. Uh, so, uh, I think Herbert Armstrong had a better approach to it than some of the ministry later got. Uh, they got into competition, one church or one feast site against another, and who could raise the most money and be proud, <laughs> you know, and pride isn't uh, a godly characteristic. That was just a wrong approach. So, anyway... Uh, I do like to once in a while say thank you for what you do. It is very much appreciated. All right, let's get into the book of John again. Uh, we're going through this at blitzkrieg speed, it seems, since we meet every day. <laughs> Sometimes with a series, it takes me a long time, a chapter at a time, but we're, we're a little ahead of that. But, uh, very interesting. Uh, I was looking ahead a little this morning, and probably we'll get to that section, but I, I learned something about something we might ought to be doing, uh, certainly sometime in the future, whether now or not. <clears throat> so we'll talk about that when we get there, but kind of enlightening little study I did. <clears throat> anyway, we got down to chapter 9. Uh, and as Emmanuel passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. Now, this is a very interesting chapter uh, about this blind man. And the Scripture devotes a fairly long chapter to this one account, this one story. So it must be a very, very important story to uh, use up that much space in the Bible, which is a pretty long book, and there's an awful lot of stuff that, is pat that has happened from Adam until today that was not included in this book. This is just a very bare-bones sketch of history of many, many things that happened over the years. And uh, a lot of things, of course, God chose not to put in here. But this must be important to occupy a whole chapter. So we'll see as we go kind of what... Uh, the importance is. So as he passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. This isn't somebody who had an accident or got old and got cataracts or something, but he was born blind. Uh, that's important to this story. 
His disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So they assumed that since there was a penalty involved, uh, or a seeming penalty, that somebody had sinned. Now today, we have diabetes and heart trouble and cancer and, you know, a whole plethora of other diseases, but those are three of the biggest and you might ask, who sinned? Well, DuPont did. Uh, what's the other, the big one I think of? Um, Monsanto did. And we did by imbibing of the things that they produce. Uh, all these chemicals and junk and things that we've crammed into our bodies for decades. And then we wonder why we have serious diseases because those things were hardly heard of. Even even when I was a child, you hardly ever heard of cancer. Uh, heart disease was rare, and diabetes uh, you almost never heard of. So these, this is a phenomenon that has actually occurred in the last 50, 60, 70 years, where a third of Americans will have each one of those, and some of them will have two or three of those three big diseases. Well, there's sins involved. Uh, not physically taking care of our bodies the way that we should. And we're in a world now where it is difficult not to physically sin. Very difficult. You walk in a grocery store, and 90-some percent of what in there is in there is not fit to eat. You walk into a convenience store at a gas station, and it's 99-plus-99% of what's in there is harmful to your body. <clears throat> I say 90%. I'm giving them a lot of leeway in a grocery store. Even the stuff that's supposedly organic you can't trust because people have all kinds of ways of beating those laws that the government put in place that you have to do in order to call it organic. So, it's, all, it's hard to find anything that's worth putting in your body. And somebody said. Uh, but this man had not done anything, or his parents, that would have caused him to be born blind because of sin, as Christ will quickly say here. Uh, well, these are days, the third day of unleavened bread, we're supposed to be putting sin out. Uh, we're eating unleavened bread. And these days are days of mixed emotions in many respects. Uh, great sadness, great sorrow over what Christ had to go through for us, and frustration because of the difficulty of dealing with our own sins. So, it is a day of frustration and sadness, and yet at the same time, a day of rejoicing and hope in that Christ was resurrected, and in that we might actually deal with some of our sins. Uh, wouldn't it be a glorious feast of unleavened bread if instead of just going through the motions of eating unleavened bread, we actually isolated and thought about ourselves and some patterns of our mind or our emotions or our words or thoughts uh, that we saw were wrong and actually changed it. <clears throat> or maybe even on a physical level, we changed some of the things that we do uh, 
uh, in what we, the junk we put in our bodies. Uh, that God says that the bodies are the temple of His Holy Spirit, and that we are not to defile that temple. Well, that's both a spiritual and a physical thing. And uh, as difficult as it is to find good food in the stores today, sometimes we just forget about all that and buy stuff we know is outright junk and stuffed down our gullets. And uh, to me, that's sin. That's sin. Uh, because we're defiling this body and causing sickness uh, by the things we imbibe of. Well, part of this holy time, these days, represent the suffering that Christ had by having his flesh stripped off and all of the physical things apart from just his blood falling on the ground, which is for our spiritual sin, but his body being broken and beaten was for our physical sin. And when we go to be anointed, to ask God to heal us there in James 5, he says we should confess our sins, uh, admit that we've been abusing our bodies. It's not talking about spiritual sins there. It's talking about physical healing. And sin, or, or excuse me, healing is the forgiveness of sin, normally speaking. Uh, he has to forgive us of what we have done that has made our bodies the way that we are. And if we go on abusing them and stuffing junk down them, uh, that needs to be repented of. Because that M&M you just swallowed, or that soda pop, or whatever junk is your junk of choice, uh, is sin. Now, I get all in trouble when I start talking about this stuff. Well, that's all right. I'm in trouble anyway. I stay in trouble. If you, if you speak God's words, you're in trouble. <laughs> Christ always was in trouble, wasn't he? One way or another, he was always in trouble. People didn't like what he said about the Father and about himself. But uh, we sometimes indulge our bodies in things that we like that are not good for us. And if we do that, <clears throat> are we showing faith? And are we showing trust and faith in He who had His body broken and beaten that we might be healed? How do we pray in faith for healing when we're being hypocritical and not taking care of our bodies in the manner in which He said? So if you haven't found anything yet during these days of unleavened bread that you could be working on to uh, overcome or to put sin out, uh, here's a real simple one we could start with. What are we going to allow in our bodies? And what will we continue to allow in our bodies after these days are over, knowing that sooner or later, partly because of the junk we imbibe, we're going to be sick and asking God for forgiveness and healing. <laughs> How do you, in faith, ask for healing and believe in healing when you've been taking junk into your body? You know, it's harder to have faith under those conditions. It really is. So we need to think, yes, the spiritual is far more important. And I've even had people use that excuse, oh, that's just physical. Well, it is. And we are physical. And God has made our bodies to eat good food to keep them healthy. 
And when we put our human appetites and desires for things that are not good for our human body, the temple of His Spirit, into that body, that becomes a spiritual sin because it's idolatry. It's putting my taste buds ahead of what's good for my body, which is contrary to God. That makes it idolatry. <clears throat> what is covetousness? Covetousness is something that generally is physical, isn't it? Do we covet spiritually? Well, maybe we can in some respects. But it's usually physical things we want that might not be lawful for us, is it not? Money, cars, houses, uh, foods, alcohol, you name it. It's usually physical things that we desire after that, not that cars and houses and alcohol and food are wrong, but a wrong way of looking at them or wanting to use them or desiring something that is not ours to have. Uh, Colossians tells us that covetousness is idolatry. So when we lust after or desire things to put in our body that we know is harmful to it, that's covetousness, and that's one of the Ten Commandments, and it's also idolatry because we're putting our desires and our lusts and our taste buds, if you will, ahead of God and the body He gave us to take care of. He gave him the Garden of Eden, said, dress and keep it, take care of it. And He gave us our body, and He said, it's the temple of His Spirit, take care of it and don't defile it. I would say that the stuff that we eat today, the poisons we put in our bodies, are far, far more dangerous to our bodies than unclean meats. The Bible is very, very clear that unclean meats are not to be imbibed. Well, it's just a physical thing. No, it's not, because it's a type of spiritual uncleanness. So he made those things, and some of them are very desirable. People love pig and oysters and shrimp. Oh, boy, turn me loose in a seafood restaurant, they say. They love that stuff. Or it tastes good. The temporary pleasures of sin. So they are a type of the spiritual. But our bodies, this physical temple, is also a type of the spiritual. So everything has spiritual implications, even though it's just physical, they say. Uh, we need to think seriously about it. So there's, there's something to work on. Which of us doesn't, from time to time, or even habitually, imbibe things we shouldn't? I wanted to finish that thought. Uh, people ate pigs and shrimp for thousands of years and didn't have cancer, heart disease, and diabetes, right? We started eating white flour and white sugar and high fructose corn syrup and all this junk in the last 50, 60, 70 years for the most part. And GMOs and everything else are doing and chemicals added in. And now we are a sick society and a sick world, dying, suffering with all kinds of maladies and diseases, aren't we? So I think I could make a case
that Monsanto and DuPont are worse than pigs for us because they're killing us faster physically than pigs and shrimp ever did. So there's a spiritual meeting with the pigs and the shrimp, of course. But there's also a spiritual meeting with this other junk we're eating because we're killing our bodies which are the temple of the Spirit. So let's not, let's not just disregard it and be flippant about it. And I think there's room there for all of us to make some improvements in this area, if nothing else. If you don't have any spiritual problems, work on this one. <laughs> or use your spiritual problems as an excuse not to work on this one. However you want to look at it. But we, we have a lot of overcoming to do. So anyway, there's a lot in that statement by his disciples because they comprehended that sin could lead to physical ailments. So they wondered who had sinned here. Emmanuel answered, Neither has this man sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God should be manifest in him. So the man was born blind, apparently on purpose, that Christ might use it as a, an example uh, of importance. Well, this is a very, very important story here. He could have picked somebody that was deaf or crippled. He could have picked somebody that was had lost their sight. But he, for this, he wanted somebody born blind. Never had seen the light. Okay? Because this is going to take on not just physical, but spiritual implications here. And people in this world are born blind, totally blind, born that way, spiritually. The whole society has been born blind. So, here's something that's going to manifest something more important than physical sight. He said, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night comes when no man can work. Now, he died not long after this, and the apostles went on. Uh, this was in early 30s, uh, 31 A.D., maybe when he died. And the New Testament church lasted about 70 years. And by the time Paul, I mean John, was writing First, Second, Third John in the Book of Revelation, <coughs> the church had pretty much disappeared. He was the last apostle, and he died, and the church just disappeared until about 1927. <laughs> uh, I mean, you can trace a little bit here and there uh, through history of people who were Sabbath keepers and so on, but it's a very, very sketchy path you have to try to put together. Uh, a few who came over among the Puritans from England were keeping the Sabbath and the Holy Days. We've, we've been able to find a historical uh, trail, and he said that the church would never die out. So I do assume that probably there have been a few Sabbath keepers and true servants of God from Christ's time until now, but boy, are they hard to find. And it's here at the end time that he raised up the church again, and uh, the pattern was the same. It lasted about 70 years and then disappeared. Uh, the church really began in the early 30s, uh, 1930s. Uh, Herbert Armstrong called in 26, 27, and the church was incorporated in 33. So uh, by the year 2000, about 70 years later, just about disappeared. Uh, 
In fact, that which was formed then is gone now. <clears throat> so, about 70 years in both cases. So when he said, the night comes when no man can work, there was a brief period there in his lifetime and of the apostles when work could be done and there was some light shining. But then Satan and darkness and Catholicism and all kinds of things uh, came to, to bear and the church disappeared. The truth disappeared. <clears throat> as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And when he was gone, his disciples carried it on for a short while and then they were gone and the light of the world disappeared. When he had thus spoken, he sped on the ground and made clay of the spittle and he anointed the eyes of the man uh, of the blind man with the clay. Now, there are, he did different ways. At times he says, pick up your bed and walk. At times he says, your sins be forgiven. Uh, there is sin involved with sickness. Uh, in this case, he took clay and then he mashed it all up in his spit and anointed the eyes of the blind with the clay. We have lots of clay here, so I think that from now on, when we when you come for anointing, we're going to get us some clay and we're going to spit in our hand and we're going to mash it all together and we're going to stick it on your head. Well, fortunately, James says that they're anointed with oil. <coughs> but this was kind of an unusual circumstance, and he did an unusual thing. I don't think he intended us to do it exactly that way uh, after that. There's no example of it. But uh, here this man had been born blind, and he, he made kind of a big deal out of it. Instead of just saying, open your eyes and get up and go away, uh, he went through this little deal that, that took some time, uh, that made people focus, what is this man doing? Uh, because it was a big deal to do what he did with this man born blind. And he's already said, I'm the light of the world. Night comes when you can't work. So he's already telling us there's a spiritual lesson here. He said then, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is by interpretation sent. He went his way, therefore, and washed and came seeing. So it was a two-step part. He put the spit and clay in his eyes, and then he told him to go wash in the, in the pool, and when he did, his sight came back. Now, he never saw Christ up to this point, right? He's blind. And when he sent him away to the pool, he was still blind. <clears throat> the neighbors, therefore, and they which before had seen him that he was blind, said, Is not this he that sat and begged? Some said, This is he. Others said, Nah, he just looks like him. But he said, I am he. I'm the one. Therefore said they to him, How were your eyes opened? Okay, you're you're witnessing that you're that guy. You didn't just you're not just a a twin. How did this happen? He answered and said, A man that is called Emmanuel made clay, and anointed my eyes, and said to me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash, and I went and washed, and I received sight. Then said they to him, Where is he? He said, I don't know. I was blind, you know. Uh, I didn't see him. I don't know where he went. They brought the Pharisees 
to the Pharisees, sees him that aforetime was blind. And it was the Sabbath day when Emmanuel made the clay and opened his eyes. <coughs> oh, there's a there's a pressure point. Then again, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He said to them, He put clay on my eyes, and I washed, and do see. Is every reporter in the world going to ask me what happened? Uh, Therefore said some of the Pharisees, This man is not of God, because he keeps not the Sabbath day. They were not going to admit (laughs) in any way, if they could get away with it, that Christ was the Son of God. And the Sabbath was one of their biggest pressure points because they worshipped it instead of kept it. And they kept it in such a weird way that how could you relax and, and get close to God when you're worried so much about whether you... Interesting, Christ kept doing it on the Sabbath. He didn't say, well, I know this is going to make the Pharisees mad, so I'll, I'll do all my healing on Wednesday and Thursday. No, he did it on the Sabbath on purpose. <clears throat> Others said, how can a man that is a sinner do such miracles? He doesn't keep the Sabbath. How can he do miracles? And there was a division among them. They say to the blind man again, what say you of him that he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. So it's clear to me he's from God. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him that had received his sight. He just would not, could They asked the born blind, How then does he now see? His parents answered him and said, We know that this is our son. He was born blind. We're two witnesses of that. We raised him. But by what means he now sees, we know not. Or who has opened his eyes, we know not. He is of age, ask him. <laughs> He'll speak for himself. <laughs> It's kind of funny what the Pharisees would go through to try to deny God. They still haven't accepted Christ for the most part. And the ones that have, the Messianics, have accepted a false Christ. uh, So it's still Satan worship. Verse 22, These words spoke his parents because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already that if any man did confess that he was Christ, he should be put out of the synagogue. You'd be disfellowship for saying Christ was the Son of God. That's coming again. So they'll kill us thinking they do God's service. And that's for the end time. That's a prophecy in Matthew 24 for now. Or, no, that one's... I don't think that verse is there, but it's very close. Therefore said his parents, He is of age, ask him. Then again called they the man that was blind... Let's talk to this guy again. We'll interview and re-interview. And said to him, Give God the praises. We know this man is a sinner. Well, it's obvious you can see. uh, So give God the praise, but bypass this guy named Jesus. He answered and said, Whether he be a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I know, whereas I was blind, now I see. You can figure out who he is if you want to, but I know one thing, he healed me. <laughs> this, this is something very clear to me. I can see now. Then said they to him again, what did, he, what did he to you? How helped he your eyes? This, this is an inquisition. 
He answered them, I have told you already, and you didn't hear. Wherefore would you hear it again? You didn't believe it the first time. Why are you asking me again? You're not going to believe it any more than you did. Will you also be his disciples? Oh, that's why you're asking again. You want to be sure so you can worship and follow him. Yeah, right. He may have been digging at them a little bit here. Then they reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. There again, remember the transfiguration where Moses and Elijah appeared, and the message was very clear. This is my son. Follow him. Worship him. Not Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah were important as sons sons of God and as prophets of God, uh, but they weren't God. So, where are you if you follow Moses? If you're a disciple of Moses? Well, you're dead. Moses can't raise anybody up. He's dead himself. We have a living Christ uh, to worship. We know that God spoke to Moses. <coughs> As for this fellow, we know not from whence he is. And they didn't recognize that he was the God that spoke to Moses. Melchizedek of the Old Testament. The man answered and said to them, Why herein is a marvelous thing that you know not from whence he is, and yet he has opened my eyes. Can't you guys add two and two together? Who else do you know that goes around making somebody born blind see, that makes the lame walk? Who else is there? He opened my eyes. Now we know that God hears not sinners. But if any man be a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears. Well, had God heard here and answered healed a man? Yes, he did. You go by the fruits. You go by what happens. Since the world began was uh, it not heard that any man opened the eyes of one that was born blind. They had no recollection, no history, no, uh, <clears throat> what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, tradition, I guess will work, of anybody in the past that was born blind and then could see. Never happened. If this man were not of God, he could do nothing. They answered and said to him, You were altogether born in sins, and do you teach us? <laughs> and they cast him out. He just pointed out something very logical, and uh, their pride and ego and vanity got in the way. So they just accused him of being a sinner and kicked him out. And Emmanuel heard that they had cast him out, and when he had found him, he said to him, Do you believe on the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? Now here's a man... The Christ looked up after this sometime later, and the man, remember, hadn't even seen Christ at this point, because Christ went on his way, and he went and washed in the pool, and then he could see, but Christ wasn't around. So when Christ walked up to him, he had no clue who he was at first. Who is he? (laughs) And Emmanuel said to him, You have both seen him, and it is he that talks with you. You're looking at him, he says, right now. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. 
See how simple it is to just change your attitude and say, Oh, now I see. I'll follow you. And then you tell your friends and neighbors, I see something. You need to get this and you need to follow it. And they say, Oh, no, you're crazy. I had somebody call me just the other day. She's probably listening right now. And uh, I told her what reaction she'd get if she tried to tell people about how to truly keep Passover. And uh, she went ahead and told some people. And boy, did she open a can of a, a sack of wildcats. <laughs> well, they were all over her. Same deal here. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. He said, you know, you did what you did, and I believe in you. Now, this man had been born blind. He was of age. He was at least 20. I don't know how old he was. But to him, seeing was a whole new world. And he had never heard of any such thing. So when Christ went through what he went through and told him what to do, and he went and did it, I made a believer out of this boy. He, he, he could see. <clears throat> he could see physically, and he was beginning to see spiritually. I believe you. And Emmanuel said, verse 39, For judgment I am come into this world, that they which see not might see, and they which see, see might be made blind. So he said, I'm here, and he's talking spiritually now. There's, there's some here... He says they're blind and they're going to see. And then he said there's some who do see that are going to be blinded. Now, when you see and then you go back to the thinking of this world, what did James say? A dog to his vomit and a sow to her mud. And once you set your hand to the plow and you turn back, you're not fit for the kingdom of heaven. So, those who do see, and then for whatever reason, begin to drift away, they become blind. And they may never see again. It's very dangerous. Very, You've got to be careful. The things that we are learning here, and have been learning the last 20 years since we began to really understand, are very, very dangerous things to know. And I know people that said they heard and they believed about the calendar and now they're departing from it going back to the Jewish calendar or some other belief and and uh, they're just dropping things that they supposedly learned well did they really see them? I don't know but it's dangerous <clears throat> once you know you cannot go back on what you know without putting yourself in severe danger and some of the Pharisees which were with him heard these words and said to him, Are we blind also? You calling us blind? They had an attitude. Emmanuel said to them, If you were blind, you should have no sin. I mean, how can we impute sin to you if you didn't know? But now you say, We see. They believed that they were spiritually enlightened, that they worshipped Moses and Abraham and the Father in heaven, and they were okay, even though he told them 
They worship the devil. So they said, we see. We're spiritually aware. His answer was, therefore your sin remains. You say you see, okay. Then your sin isn't forgiven. So then he continues, Truly, truly, I say to you, he that enters not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. So he's still referring to himself here, as he'll explain. And they would not accept him. So he says, if you try to get there in any other way, Moses, Abraham, uh, Buddha, you know, pick your, pick your poison. You won't get there. <clears throat> because if you don't do it legitimately, that makes you a thief and a robber. But he that enters in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. Straightforward, up front, right in the front door. To him, the guard, the porter, uh, the servant, opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. So they'll follow the shepherd that they know. And when he puts forth his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Now, these people weren't following Christ, so obviously they weren't his sheep. And a stranger will they not follow, but will flee from him. The sheep are like that. If they, if they know an individual who's the one that takes care of them, they're not afraid. But you bring a stranger in, and they get skittish and nervous, which is the way sheep are. This parable spoke Emmanuel to them, but they understood not the things they were which he spoke to them. He's telling them right straight out, I'm the shepherd and you won't follow me. But they didn't get it. Then said Emmanuel to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. He uses that I am again uh, from the Old Testament. I am that I am. And they thought of that as blasphemy uh, to say I am because that's a name for God. I am that I am. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. He uses I am again. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved, and shall go in and out and find pasture. <clears throat> the thief comes not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. Now, if you see somebody who has an attitude of destroying or... Uh, tearing down, removing that which has been made, that is ungodly. That isn't Christ's way. Uh, he says that's a thief, a robber, breaking a commandment. I am come that they might have life, that they might have it more abundantly. He came to build something, to introduce something good, not try to destroy. <coughs> I am the good shepherd, the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. And that's ultimately what he did. He was giving it then in service, but then he gave it by dying. He that is an hireling and not the shepherd, whose own the sheep or not, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches them and scatters the sheep. The hireling flees because he is an hireling and cares not for the sheep. So, you know, you, you have sheep and you hire somebody to take care of them, 
and uh, he doesn't really care for the sheep. He's just there for the money, for the job, and he's not going to endanger his life. Well, contrast David, who took on a bear and a lion with his bare hands and killed them both to protect the sheep. And that has to be done, too. Uh, sometimes it's hard to identify who a wolf is. Sometimes they come in sheep's clothing and appear to be sheep, uh, but they're not. They're wolves in sheep's clothing come to ravage the flock. And uh, sometimes it takes a while to recognize who they are, but then at some point the sheep, the wool comes off and uh, you see fur <laughs> of the wolves. That's why I've used the expression with Tkachas early. Is, uh, I did a teeth and tail check to see if they were sheep or, or wolves and learned pretty quickly that they were wolves. So we have to be careful. But if you discover they are wolves, there comes a time when you've got to do something about it. I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and am known of mine. As the Father knows me, and even so know I the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Now those Jews at that time that he was talking to right there would not be included. Well, he was training disciples to become apostles. He would send his Holy Spirit in Acts 2. And many sheep would come into the fold. Uh, but these people were not included. Because they didn't hear him and they didn't hear the apostles. They were against them the whole time. And that is true right now in this, in this world that those who will obey God are denied and hated and will be cast out. And of course he called some into that fold at that time uh, through, through the disciples and he's calling now and he'll do it again in the millennium in the great white throne judgment. Now these people that he was talking to at that point probably will be included in the great white throne judgment. Uh, but he told them they were on very, very dangerous ground because they understood a lot and weren't doing what they did understand. He even said back here, you say you see, but your sin remains. So some of those people were right on the edge of the unpardonable because they knew better were being hypocrites. <clears throat> Verse 17, Therefore does my Father love me because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. If we serve and give and devote our lives to one another, then God will love us. He can't help himself. No man takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. Well, they killed him, but he offered himself. Did he resist when they came to get him in the garden? No. He melted away into the crowd at times. He didn't go certain places during his ministry. But when it came time to lay down his life, <clears throat> he voluntarily surrendered to them. Didn't resist whatsoever. Read Psalm 53. Didn't answer a word. So he laid it down himself, and I have power to take it down, and I have power to take it again. 
this commandment, this authority, this reassurance have I received of my Father. So he died in faith knowing he would be resurrected. There was a division, therefore, again among the Jews for these things. <coughs> they didn't like him saying he was the Son of God. Never did accept that. And many of them said, He has a devil and is mad. Why hear you him? He doesn't, he doesn't sound like us. He must have a devil. And Christ told them they're the ones that have the devil. Others said, These are not the words of him that has a devil. Can a devil open the eyes of the blind? Come on, let's look at the facts here. You can make all kinds of accusations, but are they true? Verse 22, And it was at Jerusalem, the Feast of the Dedication, and it was winter. Uh, some interesting things here. Uh, Feast of the Dedication was, began to be kept after Antiochus Epiphanes slaughtered pigs on the altar in the temple that, that Herod had rebuilt and uh, had defiled the temple. Now, Daniel talks about that defilement and says it's going to happen again, Daniel being an, un, uh, an end-time prophecy sealed into the end, in fact. So it's not just a historical matter in Daniel. It's to be done again. In Matthew 24, Christ says, when that temple is defiled, it's the time to flee Jerusalem into the hills of Judea, or into the mountains. So, they had defiled the temple, and... Uh, Judas Maccabeus, I guess it was, who finally conquered uh, the conquerors and Antiochus uh, people, and they had cleansed and purified the temple so that they could again do the sacrifice there. So the Jews set aside the cleansing and purifying of the temple and dedicated a feast to it of eight days. And it was winter. So this happened in the ninth month, and I found this very interesting when I looked it up this morning. Happened in the ninth month, 25th day. And they've kept it on the ninth month, 25th day ever since, as a celebration of the temple being cleansed and purified. Now we focused a lot on the ninth day and the, 20, the 24th day of the ninth month, as mentioned by Haggai, where God says, From this day and forward will I bless you. And Haggai and Zechariah very obviously are speaking of the two witnesses and the remnant of the church who gather at the end time. So the ninth month, 24th day, is somehow very important to us because it's that day that he says he would bless us from. <coughs> now, he says right there in Zechariah 3 in that same context that our sins will be removed in one day. He says in Isaiah 44 just before it talks about the treasures of God coming forth that he will wipe away our sins as a cloud. They'll just disappear like a cloud can... You've seen it happen. A cloud will be there and then suddenly you look up and it's just gone. Poof. Uh, vaporizes. So I find the timing of this very, very interesting. If God blesses in whatever way he means, he talks about blessings in the first month in Joel. He also talks about blessings on the 9th and 24th to the end time church specifically. <coughs> well, if he forgives our sins in one day, 
Does that not purify? Does that not cleanse the temple? <laughs> it's a spiritual thing. Yeah, we, we may need to build a physical temple, but it's not for our sake. The spiritual temple is what's important to us. The physical temple needs to be built in order for them to defile it, and then we flee when they take over the temple of Jerusalem into the mountains. So, it apparently needs to be done, but the spiritual is the most important part in what defiles us, what defiles the temple of God's Spirit. Sin. So, if he removes it in one day and begins to bless, perhaps from that day forward, 924, isn't it interesting that the Jews finished purifying the temple and began offering the daily sacrifice again the very next day, the 25th day of the ninth month. Should we be keeping the Feast of the Dedication? Dedication of the temple, a rededication. Aren't we headed for a rededication of the church, of the temple of God? Well, yes we are. Now, he doesn't say here to keep it, and it's the only time that it's mentioned in the Bible, but Christ was there at Jerusalem, and he walked in the temple in Solomon's porch, it says in the next verse, uh, during the Feast of Dedication. They call it Hanukkah today, some of them, or jo Josephus called it the Feast of Lights, because they would light a candle on the menorah uh, on the first day, and then on the second day they'd light two, and on the third day, they'd light three through eight days of the Feast of Lights, or Hanukkah, as they call it today, or Feast of the Dedication, as, uh, as John called it here. But Josephus has quite a little, not a lot, but something to say about it, and how the Jews instituted it for the very purpose of cleansing the temple. Now, the Jews today, what they do in the... You know, the song about the, the days of Christmas and so on, all that baloney, obviously doesn't apply. Uh, and even one commentary I read said that they, they started on the 25th of December. Well, they don't understand the Hebrew calendar. They don't understand the ninth month. can put it any time from the end of November through part of January. The ninth and 24th or 25th uh, can fall and usually falls in December. Uh, I think it was this year or last year. I think it was this year it fell in January. <clears throat> but normally it's in December. But to add to that, he says it was winter. Uh, so it was late in December, the year that Christ was there at Jerusalem keeping it, because winter doesn't begin until December 21st. So if the ninth month, 25th day came before December 21st, first it would still be autumn or the fall season. Now, is there a reason he makes the comment that it was winter? After the 21st would have made it winter time. Uh, that might have, I didn't have time to look into it, but it, at some point that might become uh, important in perhaps determining the accuracy of the calendar or some such thing. I don't know. I might put some thought to that in a little research, but, but he does make it clear that that year it was winter time. Now, they mentioned the feast of the, 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 Jew, the fast that the Jews set up in Zechariah, which is a book for us, and it talked about how they had been keeping these fasts, uh, 
And I think certainly the implication was there is that we should be keeping the fasts of Zechariah, which we have started doing. Uh, we started keeping Purim, uh, something the Jews set up, not something that God ordered, but it was something they set up as a remembrance of God's deliverance. And we are looking for God's deliverance again, are we not? Day by day and watching the news and anticipating when he's going to deliver and begin to bless and to heal and to uh, prosper his people. So, Purim's in the Bible, so we keep it. Well, what about the Feast of Dedication? we got now till December something to think about it. And maybe this year, 9th and 24th, will really mean something. Who knows? And we might be so joyous we'll want to keep the Feast of Dedication the next day if our sins are cleansed and God begins to bless. Just some thoughts to throw out there to be considering and cogitating on a little bit. We don't have to make a change right now and say we'll keep that from now on. But I think it's something that Christ was at the temple, Solomon's porch, at that time. Now, he could have been in Galilee. He could have been in any number of places. But he was there. Does that mean something? I hope when the ninth and 24th comes, he's there <laughs> with us. So, uh, that was kind of startling to put, I, I never put that together, because I, I guess I hadn't paid any attention or looked it up specifically, that, but we knew of the ninth and 24th, and I didn't know that they started Hanukkah on the ninth and 25th, the very next day. That, that to me, is remarkable to contemplate. <clears throat> anyway, it gives us something to think about. Uh, then came the Jews round about him and said to him, How long do you make us to doubt? If you be the Christ, tell us plainly. Well, duh. I thought he made it pretty plain. Man answered him, I told you, and you didn't believe it. What do you mean make it plain? <laughs> the works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you believe not, because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. I told you who I am. I told you you're not my sheep, and you're still not. Now, when are you going to get it? My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And you don't, and you won't, and you aren't. And later on, he disfellowshipped them and said, I'll have nothing more to do with you till you accept those that I send. And who did he send? The apostles. And they still haven't followed them. So this whole chapter is not just about a born man born blind and being physically healed, and oh, what a wonderful, nice miracle. This is all about spiritual sight and things that are spiritually important. And he says that in the next verse. Hit my sheep, he said, I give to them eternal life through the conversion process, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. If I call them and I teach them and they follow me, uh, they'll not perish, they'll have eternal life, and nobody can take them away from me. <clears throat> and he tells us, don't let anybody take your crown. No man. Preserve it. Protect it. Uh, guard it. Take care of it. Don't be lay it a sin, lukewarm. Have the blahs spiritually. Be alert, aware, awake. Actively following Christ day by day. Give him your whole heart. 
My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. I guess they were acting. Well, if you just tell us, we'd believe you. So he told them again, and then he says, I'm one with my Father, and uh, boy, they started reaching for rocks. Emmanuel answered them, Many good works have I showed you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? (laughs) I just healed this guy, and I'm telling you, and you won't believe. And this was maybe some time later, but he'd been telling them over and over again. Because a piece of dedication came, it doesn't say the timing of when he healed a man with the eyes, but the whole chapter's been about that. So what, what good good work are you stoning me for? Well, they couldn't find any sin other than they claimed he broke the Sabbath. That was the only thing they could find. Broke the Sabbath by whose rules? God gave us rules for the Sabbath, but they didn't include a lot of the things that the Jews do on the Sabbath or don't do on the Sabbath. The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we don't stone you, but for blasphemy, because that you being a man make yourself God. They thought they had him then. You're blaspheming against God, saying you're God. He always had the right answer. Emmanuel answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, You are gods. He's quoting from Psalm 81.6 there. Ye are gods. We're made in the image of God. We have the potential to become very God. That's what he made us for. If he called them gods in the Old Testament, or they have that potential, unto whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken. Psalm stands, he says. You can't break it. It's back there. He said, I didn't write it. (laughs) You know, David wrote that long, long ago. And it's in there. How are you going to deny that? Say you of him whom the Father has sanctified and sent into the world, you blaspheme because I said I am the Son of God? You say, everybody that's ever created is the Son of God. The Bible says so. Your own scriptures that you uh, have the uh, oracles <laughs> of included says the same thing. So why do you get upset if I say I'm God? If I do not the works of my Father, don't believe me. But if I do, though you believe not me, believe the works. Do you see this guy that can see? That you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. How is God going to show the remnant where he's working? With signs and wonders, Zechariah 3 says. And with the eyes, seven eyes will turn to the rock. Christ is the stone. He's the foundation. He's the rock who will do the miracles and signs and wonders just like he did back then, but he'll do them through men, even as he did through James and Paul and Peter and so on. And they will believe the works, and they will be stirred to begin to come. It's the way God works. Therefore they sought again to take him, but he escaped out of their hand and went away again beyond Jordan. There's a, there's a miracle for you, isn't it? 
you got these guys frothing at the mouth, picking, actually, literally picking up the rocks to throw at his head, and he gets away. How did he do that? Where did he go? <laughs> and he went away again beyond Jordan to the place where John had first baptized, and there he abode. And many resorted to him and said, John did no miracles, but all things that John spoke of this man were true. He often said, it's not me, it's the one that is coming that I don't have the right to even unlatch his shoe and wash his feet. But all things that John spoke of this man were true, and many believed on him there. So there were some who did believe that he was Christ, he was God, they didn't begin to be baptized and converted at that point, but they did begin to recognize who the Son of God was. Well, we're out of time, and we made through two chapters, and I think uh, see something there that we might not have gotten before that might be important on the Feast of the Dedication and when it occurred and why it occurred. So we'll stop for there, there for today. Number 40. Number 40. Give thanks.